0: Welcome back to Innovation Big and Small. Hi there, Jim.
1: Hi, Squirrel. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing okay. It's really hot here in England, so uh, I hope I can uh, make it to the end of the podcast without melting. But uh, okay. I definitely I definitely want to because there's something I'm really keen to hear about, which is business model archetypes. And we promised last time, we left on a cliffhanger, at least it was a cliffhanger for me. <laughs> what are these business model archetypes? I'm really keen to hear if there are any that I, that I recognize from my startup world. I imagine there'll be some and there'll be some that are only make sense in, in big company world. So uh, I'm, I'm keen to hear about what they are.
1: Okay. Well, the, the thing I want to start with is just, you know, you, the, the basis for making any business model is that you have clarity around the customers you're serving and what you're going to deliver to them. And I think further, uh, I think further knowing how much value you're delivering to them, having some way of understanding that value because then that gives you a basis for seeing whether one business model or another helps you capture more of the value.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, And if you'd go into the business model thing with, uh, you know, into a business model without knowing how much value you're creating, you may be happy with what you're getting, but it may be not that great. So anyway, what I mean by an archetype is something where that's coherent. The piece parts support one another. And the thing they're supporting is the uh, economic leverage that the business model brings. It's a business model they, that the piece parts work together to make better and better over time. So it not only should sustain your margins and lead to growth, but pr- create competitive advantage. So you the model itself has to have that. And the different elements will be very different. Otherwise, I, I use the example like McDonald's and Le Chateau are both in the restaurant business. But they're, everything about them is different except that you get food and you pay for it. Mm-hmm. The How fast they turn around, what the pricing is, how standard things are, who they hire, how long they expect you to be in the restaurant. Um, everything is different about them. And if you try to grab pieces from, well, I'll use this channel and that product pricing point and and you put it together, it's like Mr. Potato Head. If you ever played that game when you were a
0: kid? Oh, yeah. And, and a lot of startups feel that way. So uh, often a startup is kind of making it up as it goes along and it does not know beforehand. So the, the big difference we talked about it last week is the startup kind of starts at the, the top of your pyramid and goes down, kind of starts by experimenting. Yeah, yeah. And and you often wind up with things both in the technology and in the business model and and all over the place that the salaries are goofy and you know, lots of things are or don't make a lot of sense. And then there's a stage where you have to kind of put it all back together again and make it coherent. So that's where I think this stuff might be that, that makes really sense. useful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that the key is that there, there probably are only 40 or 45 or something like that archetypes. And, you know, there, there are hundreds and hundreds of things that people try that just don't succeed. They, they may succeed, but they're not competitive enough to survive. Hmm. So, uh, you, you know, and that it's where disruption comes from. When someone uh, finds a better overall business model, it can uh, disrupt the existing business model so for example i would say you know the mom and pop uh bookstore was a business model it had the you know a cost structure that was very local it had an inventory that was limited it had a price point that dealt with the convenience and the relationships. then the big box stores like blockbuster or like uh borders or barnes and noble came through and they just killed the local uh bookstores but at the same time they were doing it online and Amazon in particular had a better model. It could give you a much bigger selection at a lower price, almost as timely. And uh, that killed the, uh, you know, the big box model. And each of the, the models is coherent inside itself. You know, where you locate a big box store is different from where you locate a uh, smaller store. And obviously you're not located online, uh, you're just online. So, I mean, some of the interesting ones uh, to me, you know, the the one that I think started all the consulting business were was the relative market share. In the old days, the uh, manufacturing companies won based on their relative market share because the more you sold, the lower your cost per product and the more you could invest in uh, making an efficient uh, engine and the more you sold. So it's just, if you you know, the whole BCG or Boston Consulting Group growth share matrix was all about playing that game. And then an old model, uh, it's probably still relevant, that was uh, very big was the experience curve market. So there were companies based on that same theory who said, look, I'm going to make something and I'm going to price down the experience curve. I'm going to price at a point where I get so much market share that I'll drive my costs down faster than my competitors. And, and I'll just rinse and repeat along that. So there's a, those are both kind of where the economic leverage comes from. But there are others that are very different. Like they, uh, in, in some industries, people replicate your offering very quickly in financial services that happens, for example. So there, there's a model that's called time profit where everything in the whole business is built around either inventing the new offer or doing everything you can to get it rolled out as broadly as you can, as quickly as you can. So you take maximum advantage of the the launch of your product before people can replicate it. And if you look at it, when you look at what happens in one financial services firm versus one that's uh, competing on time, everything is different. And so those are. That's the kind of uh, you know on the surface it's the same thing. Maybe you can even buy some of the same products, but the way they're making their money is uh, is very different. So that's sort of the uh, the thing I, I
0: mean when I'm talking about a business model. Got it. Well, and certainly for a startup, they don't. A startup never has access to large parts of the market. If it does, it does. It's not a startup anymore. Right. Right. So. Right the 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 notion of dominating a market, driving down your costs, dominating even more of the market, driving them down further. That one, just doesn't make any sense. That that was which the growth which matrix,
1: the growth share matrix or share relative matrix, sorry, market yeah. shares. What the model would. be Yes, called. of
0: course. And uh, re- relative market share is always nearly nil for us yeah, for yeah, a startup. Yeah. So um, unless
1: you're creating the market, then your your key is to make sure that. Uh, your business model doesn't make it easy for someone else to, uh, to jump in. So for startups, a lot of times getting scale, getting big, fast ends up being part of what their competitive advantage is. It's building brand it's building, uh, you know, so that becomes critical. And, uh, for many startups also trying to be at the hub, a business model around hub where you're the connector between. Players like Uber, for example, is a connector between drivers and uh, and people who want to ride, and they have very sophisticated technology that enables that to do better than a taxi cab company can do or a limo service company can do, and they bring other things with it. But the the bottom line is their business model is being a connector, and everything they do is. Uh, or ought to do
0: is oriented around making that work and be better. And certainly startups play the time game very well. So the the time, sorry, I missed again the name of it, the time. Um, yeah, they're time just shift. called time profit. Time profit.
1: Yeah.
0: Time in certain startups is absolutely vital, especially as you say, if you are um, creating the market and you want to get there, you want to get um sticky people attached to you first. Um, I often see this in, in um, financial services for one, but but any place where you have big uh, customers who may want to uh, integrate with you and incur a lot of costs to do that. And if you're the first and only one, then they'll all integrate with you and then they'll be sticky. It'll be hard for them to move. So that's your protective power, but it's a land grab. You have to get to them and then they they won't move very much. And um, that when, when there's that kind of opportunity and you know that there's a trend in the market and being there first is helpful, then then you do sacrifice everything to move fast. Yeah, that that makes sense. That that can be very painful for for people in the company because it's not a fun experience always to (laughs) sacrifice the bit that you're doing and to be sacrificed in order to to go quickly. But it is a, a working strategy for startups, unlike the sort of being in the growth uh, position and then dominating more it's it's um uh, creating the market at the same time as dominating it and and holding it
1: yes and it's and it, i think the key thing is to uh be clear because there's going to be pain somewhere so you want to make sure it's worth it right so you want to make sure that whatever you're absorbing the pain for has a payoff in the end in terms of the business model it supports uh where you it supports the profit engine or the uh, Amazon always calls it the flywheel. Whatever you're doing, um, one one of the ones that I've been very involved with is advanced services. That's what I do, work with Aston University on. What the kinds of businesses I helped launch at Goodyear, and in that instance, it's people taking product and selling it as a service. And the uh, and the idea behind that is, uh, you know, in, in our case, it was you know you're selling uptime or you're selling uh, miles instead of selling, uh, instead of selling a product. Now a manufacturer is in an ideal position to do that because they know more about their product than anyone else. They can use information, intelligence, and you know perhaps their other assets like field service to deliver a better experience for the customer. But in order to do that, it's not just a pricing model. Now you're selling it by the. Um, you know, selling it by the mile or whatever you, you you're decided, or uh, it's also you have to have different frontline employees, different technology. You have to be willing sometimes to service the product of competitors. You uh, you may design your product differently. You're investing much more in IT, so you're a, you're a product company, and and many product companies have trouble making the transition to being one that's providing a much higher value. Service so at, at Goodyear for example we provided uh, uptime to commercial trucks. If you're a just-in-time delivery truck or a critical cargo truck or a long haul truck and you break down, the costs go much beyond just the cost of the uh, tire that's been hurt. They uh, you know and the roadside assistance you may also affect your customer relationship. Getting the landing slot, your drivers may time out in terms of. They may have to take a rest before they can go back on the road. So there's a a much higher leverage to that. So those are that's a kind of business we entered into. But it's you have to we had to start it really as a separate business because inside a product company it's difficult. So that's a it's worth doing. Slawatsky, who I've mentioned before, talks about value migration. He says whatever business model you have, it's going to change where the value is captured in the value chain will change over time. And if you're not alert to it and you just stick to your old knitting, uh, you may be hurt longer term. Same for startups, I'm sure.
0: Oh, absolutely. And the startup is usually experimenting and trying to discover what business model to make because, again, it doesn't start with one and then yes, try to implement it exactly. and study it and so on. The startup says, oh, these people seem interesting. Let's talk to them and then figures out what to sell to them afterwards, which seems nuts. And then it's it's ready, fire, aim rather than um, doing any kind of uh, aiming. But no, I'm
1: sure it can lead to some lock-on lock-out though. People get an idea of what their business they're in and the business oh, model yeah. they're using, and then they weren't considering the range
0: of them. So, And that has harmed startups over and over again that I've seen that uh, they, they they get too attached too early and they miss an opportunity to uh, really radically shift the type of thing they're doing. The, the biggest one I'm seeing these days is um, lack of exploitation of data. So they'll get these massive amounts of data. Then every time I'm you know I have boilerplate in my due diligence reports. It says, by the way, you probably could do something with all this data that's sitting over here and that's a completely different model, a completely different service that you'd be providing alongside the thing they're actually doing for people, you're generating this huge amount of very useful data about whatever it is they're selling, whatever they're, right. they're doing. And uh, if you anonymized that and sold it back to them, they'd be used, they'd find that useful. If you produced uh, public reports on it, it would be very useful in your marketing and probably is something you could sell independently to analysts. There's all kinds of things you could do with this pile of data and uh, my sense is a lot of them nod and then continue selling whatever they used to so i i, I, yeah. I think there's huge untapped potential in that particular area for shifting business model than selling a completely yes, different type absolutely. of product which needs to be served, um uh, priced and serviced and um, maintained in a completely different way very similar to your your uptime for uh for trucks i did want to ask about that i think we have to stop soon but but just tell me how how did you sell that? So is it, I'm driving down the highway and the, the, the tire blows out. Does does Goodyear cover my cost uh, for for um, all the costs that come from that? Or do they just tell me before it goes out to replace the tire back at the last service station?
1: There were actually a couple of business models we went into, but with the primary one, uh, what we did was reduce by 90% the number of roadside failures they had. Mm-hmm. And so, and we met with them frequently and looked at the data and so forth. So they uh, we sold it on a subscription basis mm-hmm. and, you know, they paid per vehicle per month, but they saved you know, three times what they spent.
0: When you were able to understand their value, that gave you the um, the the way to get into that pricing and to say, look, well, you can subscribe to this. We know that we'll be reducing your risk a lot. Your costs, your um, expenses will go down. Therefore, the value will be high to you. Got it. OK, I, I wish more startups did that. Um, I think there a lot of them are still stuck in um, one or another kind of product mentality. There there are some that manage to get to that level of uh, offering a, an outcome. Uh, the outcomes are almost always much more valuable than the, uh, the actual product. Almost always. Yeah. Got it. Makes sense. Well, maybe that's maybe that's another topic is selling outcomes instead of products. We should, we should pick that one up. OK, cool. Yep. Jim's writing it down. Excellent. We'll look at that one in another in a future episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Jim, for uh, stimulating ideas as usual. If you're interested in these business archetypes, we'll have some links in the show notes as usual to to various things that we've mentioned. You can have a look there. You can get in touch with us and ask questions. See that in the show notes as well, or just uh, check us out on Twitter and elsewhere on LinkedIn. Uh, we're, We're all over. And of course, we like it when you hit the subscribe button because then you can come back and listen to us again, and we'll talk about business archetypes and more exciting stuff on the next Innovation Big and Small. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Will. Talk to you soon.